Welcome. Today we have Jason Eichenholz, co-founder and chief technology officer at Luminar Technologies. At Luminar, Jason's responsible for R&D and engineering new products and bringing Luminar's technology to market. He's a fellow of OSA and holds more than 35 patents on lasers and photonic devices. Jason has an MS and PhD from Creole at the University of Central Florida and a BS in physics from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Welcome, Jason. Hey, good morning. Uh, the uh, congratulations on this milestone in Luminar's path. Uh, if we could just start, if you could explain a bit about what the public offering is and why it's important to Luminar and LIDAR generally for listeners, just exactly what, what happened and uh, why is it important? Yeah, uh, Luminar's listing uh, for our SPAC back in December was a pivotal moment for the company, something we were really excited about because it really represented not only a, a growth opportunity for us within Luminar, but also for the entire automotive industry. And it strengthened our position to be the global leader in LiDAR and software for autonomous vehicles. So it was really a, a big event. And for the company, you know, as an entrepreneur, all those years of, of trying to grow a company, it really is enabling us to accelerate production and the commercialization of our industry-leading hardware and then further bolster the software solution. Uh, and it gives us flexibility to adjust and pivot and act opportunistically as uh, new opportunities are put forward. As we've been growing post public offering and expanding the team with the staff we need, it also allowed us to put the company in a really, really strong financial position. So all the cash stays with us. Our shareholders aren't selling any stock as part of the transaction. In fact, a majority of them increase their stakes because they see the long-term value of Luminar. You said that this is a public offering. It's not an initial public offering. It's not an IPO, I guess. What's the difference with that? Yeah, that, that's a common question we get. So we, we went... Uh, through our public offering through a SPAC. It's a special purpose acquisition company. And it's a type of investment fund that allows public stock market investors to invest in private equity type transactions. So it means we did go public and you can it's traded under laser, but within the shell of another company, which in our case was Gore's Metropolis. And so we chose to go public via a SPAC route rather than an IPO. And we did that in partnership with Gore's because of their, they have one of the strongest track records in the space in building successful public companies through SPACs, as well as they have very, very deep technology and industry experience within the automotive space, which was important to us as we are going public via the SPAC. Uh, so these SPACs have suddenly become a thing. <laughs> they seem to be very popular now. Maybe they always were, and we just didn't hear about them so much. Why is that a more popular uh, mode of doing this now, and particularly in these LIDAR automotive area? Yeah, so that is a common question uh, in the industry. Why are SPACs more popular now? And they've, they've been around for a large number of years. But what, what's really helpful for a high growth tech company like ours is it, it enabled us via this transaction to share our projections for the future with investors in a DSPAC transaction. So what, what that means is it allowed us to attract institutional capital that's not typically possible in a traditional IPO. And the route of a SPAC process, it really gave us the ability to market to investors more flexibly and efficiently in a more comprehensive timeframe than a typical IPO route. So for tech companies, it's very, very popular 
for those reasons. So Luminar is a second LiDAR company to go public in this way after Velodyne. Innoviz and AI have also announced plans to go public. What does this say about LiDAR companies that they're going IPO now and Luminar being one of the first ones out of the gate? Yeah, so I, I think the spike of IPOs or public offerings of LiDAR companies demonstrates the tremendous value that LiDAR technology has and that the market is beginning to recognize the value and importance of LiDAR in enabling uh, autonomy. So entering the public markets provides us with rapid access to capital and allows us to continue our leadership position and enable autonomy at an unprecedented scale and allows us to expand our operations quickly with the capital that we have. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing this happen. There was, so the, the public offering process requires a lot of public disclosures and, and there's a lot of anticipation as the date approaches. I'm sure there was a lot of work involved, a lot of excitement. This is the first time you've been through that experience. Is there anything that surprised you about the process? So yeah, it's exciting to go public. I mean, it's just every entrepreneur's dream. You, you, you start a company, you grow a company, you go public. Uh, that's, that's what you want. And it's also daunting, you know, a lot of public disclosures. And so we, we were really, really fortunate in that we partnered with Alec Gores and the team at Gores Metropolis. I mean, they, they really drove the path for us and showed how we could get there. But they also shared our vision for safe, autonomous future powered by Luminar. And so their deep experience in that going public via SPAC space was invaluable in helping us successfully execute on our public offering. So you make it sound like having the right partner is a big part of this process. Oh, it, it, absolutely. And it, it's the right partner, but they were the right partner that matched into our team mm-hmm. and the team that we had assembled uh, over the past number of years. And so we would not have been able to get there and see our listing through without the hard work of the team that we built. So we're really grateful also for the team with their talent, with their dedication, what they bring every day at Luminar. And the match between the two was really important. The chemistry huh. between Alec Gores and our team was, huh, was interesting. Now, if we, if we could talk about Luminar a little bit more, um, maybe review how far Luminar has come. Uh, I think it was founded in 2013. Is that right? About around yep. then. If you could say a little bit about how it started and then um, maybe, you know, where it came out of and how it started and the I- ideas for it in the beginning, back in the... I mean, look, I, I, that's why I have a co-founder, Austin Russell, uh, who I've known since he was in high school. And we've been working together uh, and I, I started mentoring him. And then he, you know, as he was coming out of high school, he got, and going into Stanford and going to conferences like Clio with me and other, other OSA conferences, even as a student. Uh, so a lot of ties into OSA. We then, uh, he went to Stanford. He got the Teal Fellowship. That really was a, a real catalyst for getting Luminar started and growing. And we've been doing R&D for a number of years and growing in stealth. And then we came out of stealth and were much more publicly visible. But those early years of being able to grow Luminar and establish a very, very strong intellectual property portfolio while we were in stealth, make sure we had a real strong IP portfolio and technology base in the iSafe LiDAR and, and making really one of the first to move to 1550 and doing so was really, really important because we knew how important 1550 and the iSafe LiDAR was to enabling autonomy. And so if you think about how long ago we knew 
that a LIDAR was going to be important. We knew how difficult it was to enable autonomy and we had the right technology solution being developed and now we're bringing it to full commercialization. So you're saying the 1550 was a, a key part of the, of the strategy then? We knew the power and, and the photon budget advantages. We mm -hmm. knew very, very well way back then what it would take to be able to see out you know, beyond 250, 300 meters in performance. We knew how important it was to have the point density. And we knew that the technology was gonna be the fundamental foundation. And we planted the seeds once we had the technology to enable the software as well to do the perception. I'd like to point out for the listeners uh, that there, there's been claims that there was some 90 or 100 LIDAR companies out there, which I questioned at one point. You know, sometimes people uh, double count or they, they get pretty inclusive, but there, there have been a, just an extraordinary number of LIDAR companies out there. And uh, certainly, they're not, the, the, not very many of them are going to make it all the way to uh, the next milestone as Luminar has. Uh, so... That's quite an accomplishment. I want to also uh, ask you something. So the the Teal Fellowship that was that's Peter Teal's fellowship, which uh, what uh, for people to go off and work on a project instead of completing colleges is that correct? Correct. Austin correct. It's a hundred thousand dollar for Austin to then start Luminar and for us to to grow the company and and having been there, you know, throughout that entire journey, it was absolutely wow. transformational for us in those early stages to get the company going. Interesting. Now, uh, you talked about the technology here, but you also mentioned software earlier. And I don't uh, naturally think of LiDAR as software oriented. Obviously, software is at everything that we do now. But you pointed that out. Could you say something about the software and how that fits into the LiDAR equipment? Well, what, at, at the end of the day, what we're really enabling is providing the vision. We've developing the eyes for the self-driving car so the cars can perceive the world around them in order to make informed decisions and, and be safe and ubiquitous. So the LiDAR is part of the solution. Now we have the best LiDAR, the highest performance LiDAR, and it allows us, you know, you can look at it on a screen, but at the end of the day, you need to do perception. You need to be able to enable the car to understand the world around it. And the other pillar is the software. And when you have the industry-leading hardware and you have the industry-leading software to do perception, then you offer the complete solution. Now, I would have thought that the software would have been left to, say, the automakers or at least a subsystem maker who is using sensor fusion, bringing in all these different sensors and then doing it at that point. But you're saying there's, some so there's a substantial amount of software at the LiDAR, within the LiDAR itself. To be clear, we do the perception. The perception, yeah. don't do any of the route planning or any of those other things, but it's, it, they do the controls, they do the planning, they do all mm. those other aspects. But we are, as we are the industry experts on the hardware to develop the LiDAR, we build our systems from the chip level up. We develop, you know, custom ASICs, we develop the lasers, we develop the receivers and the scan mechanisms. At the same time, we develop the software with an equal level of attention to detail. And because we have the highest quality, the highest point density, it allows the two symbiotically to work together to ensure that the hardware and the software, I, I call it a one plus one equals 11 uh, <laughs> scenario, but you've got to do both. I like this because uh, I'm photonics background myself, a hardware background, and I always uh, 
you know, focus on that. I, I really appreciate that part of it. But often we neglect or we don't recognize in our optics field all the other stuff that goes into it, the electronics, the software that makes the whole package work. So right. that's it. So you have a lot of software we, people. We, at, we, do. We, we do. We have a, a very, very strong team of software around the world now. And we've, we've really grown that team. We also... It, but that's also another part of it is the automotive grade. And so making sure that the technology meets the IATF standards, we make sure we've got functional safety built in. It's something that an automaker would put into a production vehicle. And so going public has allowed us to give us essentially the dry powder to bring in that team as well to make sure that we've got a auto grade product. And so we've got the technology, we've got the software, and we have a product that can be deployed in a vehicle that you're going to be able to get out in the showroom in, in just a couple of years. Okay. So tech, uh, technology, intellectual property, obviously very important. Something else, I mean, maybe alluding, as you're saying, to the auto grade aspect of it. And automakers are notoriously challenging to work with, uh, very demanding, um, long time ranges, all that. How, how has that been? Well, so, so the industry is changing significantly and the auto companies and the OEMs are, are rapidly trying to figure out how to address autonomy. It's new. This is the single largest transformation to transportation since the Model T. So transportation as we know it is rapidly changing. And with that rapid change, the industry is realizing that they need to adjust and they realize that they need perception, very high quality perception to enable autonomy rather than driver assistance features. Both are really transformational. LIDAR is a very, very important part of that solution. And the automakers that we're working with recognize the importance, the highest level of performance for perception to have the safest autonomy. Now, the trade press has reported some important partnerships that Luminar has. Uh, what can you share about some of those partnerships? Well, as we discussed, you know, now that we're publicly traded, I, I have to be very uh, careful in what we can and cannot say. But but what I can talk about is our, our strong partnership with Volvo, partnership with Mobileye and Daimler Trucks. Oh, Daimler Trucks. Okay. Daimler Trucks. Yes. Because truck, again, trucking is, is a very important uh, market segment for us, enabling the transportation of goods and services across the country faster, uh, having less spoilage of food, all those things. And Daimler Trucks, one of the leaders in, in the industry, uh, has also recognized the importance of, of high performance LIDAR for their highway autonomy uh, trucking operations. Yeah. A lot of miles on long haul routes where they can automate that. What can consumers expect in the near term re regarding self-driving cars on roadways? Uh, the question everybody wants to ask, how soon can we expect mass production of these vehicles uh, for the sort of average driver? Care to comment on that? Yeah, I can. I mean, so for production vehicles, uh, it's 2022. That's when the real trans transformation begins in our partnership with Volvo to enable the next level of safe oh. self-driving and, and what we are excited and what I'm excited about is real driver out of the loop operation. The, the differences between the autonomy that's available today and what we're going to be offering, and, and it's going to be restricted. I mean, it'll be restricted to, to highway driving and you're going to see more and more 
of a geofenced or operate, you know, reduced what we call operational domain in highways. But I'm personally very much looking forward to being able to get into a car. I, I love driving. I absolutely love driving, but I hate to commute. And if you can drive yourself onto the highway and then enable a true driver out of the loop operation, and you're doing that mundane drive on a highway up I-95, up the East Coast, or down the 101, or down the five, and you can literally turn on autonomy and let the car be in control, that's gonna be transformational. And it's something I'm really excited about. So you make it sound kind of like a more advanced cruise control where uh, the trucker or the, the consumer gets it to the restricted area, and then it takes it from there. Well, I, I, I think it's a whole new level above. I mean, I think there are the adaptive cruise controls as driver assistance features today, but that requires the driver to be in, in control of the car at all times. Driver in the loop. The driver is ultimately responsible. The driver needs to be touching the steering wheel every once in a while. Some auto manufacturers put a camera in to make sure the driver is looking at the road. I mean, if you think about how limited autonomy is today, if you have to have a camera looking at the driver to ensure that the driver is paying attention, is that really autonomy? I don't think so. It's a driver assistance feature. I'm talking about the ability to take a nap and not pay attention. The car is in control of itself. Level five. uh, No, level four. Thank you for clarifying. Level four. Because... You're limiting the operational domain. You're limiting it to highway autonomy. Okay. And over time, what I think will happen for drivers is you will see systems like ours and you'll see the operational domain expand and expand. So everyone's so focused on on the ability to, you know, you don't drive a car, you don't own a car. I think what you're going to see is people that have cars that have full driver out of the loop experiences. They can take a nap. They can watch a movie. They can be going down the highway and be safe. At the same time, they're not going to be able to drive around the corner, you know, with their sleeping. And, and yeah. I think that's perfectly acceptable to a large percentage of people. Okay. Yeah. And you said uh, 2022. So that's, that's relatively soon. I, I was thinking that you're about to say that, okay, well, you'll see it, you know, with the trucks first or this or that. And, and in 10 years, maybe the automakers will start doing this into production. But you're saying that uh, Volvo is really moving along on this. Yeah, the, the next generation spot to platform is going to have a modular architecture. And you're going to see uh, our hardware seamlessly integrated into the roof of the vehicle on the Volvo platform and starting it, with that LiDAR seamlessly integrated in 2022. Wow. It's exciting. All right. Uh, let's, uh, if we could pivot a little bit and talk about your OSA affiliation, you've been involved with the Optical Society. Well, starting uh, as a student chapter president while an undergraduate at Rensselaer in uh, Troy, New York, helping to launch that chapter. Um, if you could tell us about your experience with the chapter and how it led to other volunteer activities within the society. I wasn't familiar myself with the, how far back you go with OSA. You had been a student representative on the OSA membership and education services council, uh, tech served as a technical group chair, technical division chair, and also on OSA's uh, meetings committee. So, uh, maybe a few words about that experience and. I was really fortunate to have some really great mentors uh, in my career as an undergrad at RPI, as well as in grad school from industry. But 
I was, as an undergrad, we started a OSA chapter at Rensselaer, uh, grew the chapter, and that got me more actively involved as a student. And that student tie-in was very early in my career and very pivotal in my career because I started meeting some really great people on the various committees. So then I became the student representative on the MES, or Membership and Education Services Council. That interaction was, was really pivotal because it just exposed me to things I didn't even know about in career paths, technology, decision-making, and leadership. And then there was sort of a gap. So I sort of, I sort of graduated and, and I had all these things and I was no longer a student. I wasn't on, the, on that. That allowed me to then work with the societies to say, hey, we need an early career pathway for people that are early in their careers, because most of the people that serve on these technical group chairs or division chairs or the meetings committee or the finance committee are late career. They've established themselves and they've earned that position. How do you find somebody early in their career that wants to be actively involved? They haven't developed the technical skills, the leadership skills, the credentials to be a fellow. You know, if you look at the gap, you know, from we're talking about 19... 95, even earlier when I was an undergrad, I graduated in 93. So I was actively involved in the society. You're talking about a 15, 20 year gap before I became a fellow. How do you address that gap as a society? Now, because of partially because of my experience, you have these early career initiatives to start getting people more actively involved. Yeah, we have an ambassadors program now and some of these other things that I, I think a lot of early career people say, well, you know, they're focused on their uh, job or whatever. And they, they say, well, I, I'm, I don't know how I could really contribute at this point, but there's always something to do. And I think even if you show up and you start off just <laughs> welcoming people and doing those sort of things, you, you find things to do and you really learn a lot at the, at the beginning, maybe it, it's all uh, confusing, but after a while it, starts to come together and that's how you start. So uh, thanks for that. And it it allows you to build social capital within the photonics community, whether it's any society, but within the the community in general, and you're meeting interesting people, you're, and, and you never know where that volunteer time that you're spending, whether it's like I did as a technical group chair or technical division chair on the meetings council, you never know how that interaction can be helpful for other people or for you. You never know. That's the great thing about it. You are a large and global community. OSA has 23,000 members, and yet we're not so large. It's it sometimes seems like a very small world. You come across people again and again. Uh, you were elected an OSA fellow in 2015. Um, o- fellows are a diverse group of OSA members who've served with distinction in the advancement of optics and photonics. How has your, your uh, involvement with OSA impacted your professional career and those of others who you've supported over the years, uh, like students and early career, career professionals? Well, I, I think that getting a fellow was, was one of the highest honors in my career, uh, something I never expected uh, given my career path, which was a non-traditional path. I wasn't trying to be a professor at the university. I wasn't going down that academic path. I was most interested in the commercialization of photonics technology. I was even as an undergrad interested in that and had joint projects. I was doing building and, you know, making holograms in my basement in high school. So from a very early stage, it was very applied. And I knew from 10th grade that I wanted to be in lasers and optics. So to fast forward, 
you know, out 25 years and you become a, a OSA fellow, it was a true honor for me. And, but it was also nice, nice because it was really paving the way for more, uh, let's call them industrial or more commercial people to, to have a pathway for uh, getting OSA fellow. So it's affected my career in that it, it, it's opened up other pathways for people that are following a similar path and to within the OSA show that there are additional pathways both for uh, careers, but also for, for meetings. So when I was part of the meetings council and, and, and moving things forward, we established Applied Industrial Optics Conference. That's just a conference I started at. I started, I mean, as, as a comedian, I said, this is something we need to do to be more applied. And then to give a light of the future plenary lecture at the conference I actually helped create sort of brought it all full circle. So now I'm, I'm giving lectures that I never would have expected to give within the technical societies and these plenary and invited talks at the same time, remembering the roots, but also helping create those meetings. It's been quite a journey. Yeah, I remember when you got that, and uh, we, we were really pleased to see that go to you. Um, so you've had quite a journey. Uh, some of the companies that you've been at, many people listening may know you from some of these places, Laser Energetics, E-Tech, Newport, Ocean Optics, and then Halma, Open Photonics, which you started in 2013, Luminar. You've had some fairly prominent positions at some of those companies. So how did that whole journey prepare you for Luminar? You, you went off and you started Open Photonics uh, around that time. So that was obviously a big step. That was a big part of it. But how would you summarize that journey getting to this point? I call it a roller coaster. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I worked for a company, Laser Energetics. Uh, we got SBIRs in 1998 on kilowatt class fiber lasers. So if you go back how far that was, Tony Siegman from Stanford was part of that program. We had neat ideas on game-guided fibers. 98. Think about kilowatt-class fiber lasers way back then. But then that company ran out of money, and I lost a job. And, and you know, okay, now what do you get laid off? You know, first, first job out of graduate school, you get laid off. Okay. <laughs> so then I got into this thing called telecom. Same thing happened in 2001. Okay, it's a little bit of a roller coaster. But what's really interesting is that if you look at my career, I then ended up working and got a phone call from one of my best mentors I could have asked for, Gary Spiegel at Newport, and said, hey, saw you got laid off. Would you come work for us? But I can't hire you because we've just laid off thousands of people. Uh, would you be a consultant for a period of time? You know, I was dabbling with entrepreneurship. I wasn't ready to be an entrepreneur. I'd figured that out in a company that I had tried to, to start called Photonic Displays. It didn't work well, didn't understand it. And I took this job at Newport. And it was because of the social capital I had with Gary from the time I was an undergrad. And the team that I'd met at Newport, and we'd also, I'd also worked with Coherent. I, in, in graduate school, I built a, a demo in the Newport booth where we made a titanium sapphire laser and showed that off as an experiment, did a kit, and we worked with Coherent and some, some leaders there. But I also worked with a company called Spectrophysics, and they had sponsored part of my PhD program, worked with Jim Kafka there. 
uh, who is a luminary in the field of solid state lasers and they help sponsors part of my PhD to then go fast forward when I'm part of the Newport team and then we're acquiring uh, spectrophysics. Now I'm working for spectrophysics in Newport. It, this is the roller coaster part of it. Uh, I then ended up uh, getting a job offer and getting approached to work at Ocean Optics and they were right in my backyard and I was tired of traveling 150,000 miles a year and to do more, move back from sort of the marketing and strategy side back into the technology area, which was really my core, but they wanted somebody that could understand markets and technology. Got a great opportunity working at Ocean Optics. Ocean Optics was hired by Halma. I went through their leadership development program. They promoted me into a position, created a position for me within Halma and in the health optics division, working with Avo Photonics and Ocean Optics and Ocean Thin Films that became Pixel Tech and LabSphere and FiberGuide, as well as all the health optics companies. So it was a great, great position, but the entrepreneurship calling just kept calling at me. And I saw the need within the industry to try and do something different. And so I read a book, perhaps I got a book on open innovation and said, this is how you innovate. This is how you develop technology. This is how you address new markets. And the biggest challenge you have as a tech leader or an entrepreneur leader is when you can see around corners, you see opportunities, you see things, and you can't convince your leadership to go do it. I had those problems at Newport and Spectrophysics. I had those problems within Ocean Optics. I was frustrated that I couldn't get companies to fund technology and market opportunities that I could see, but others couldn't. And that's why I started Open Photonics as a different way to innovate. Around the same time, I was working more and more with Austin. We were co-developing. We were doing work within Luminar uh, or for Luminar within Open Photonics. And same thing. We saw an opportunity for self-driving and for LiDAR before anybody else really did. There was only one solution out there these spinning buckets on top of cars and, and it didn't meet the needs. It didn't meet the needs of the industry. And we had the opportunity and I had a co-founder that also had this vision. We had this vision to transform autonomy and we had to leverage my decades of experience with what he was building out together. And it was a great partnership. We're a great team. He's a phenomenal entrepreneur and, and this growing leader. And, you know, here we are. That's quite a journey to just take all of that and have a publicly traded company. By the way, I'd like to point, I remember when you were giving talks on open photonics and the concept of open innovation and anybody who's interested in that, I encourage you to go out and, and uh, take a look at it, just the, the concept in general. The uh, your, your journey just sort of reminds me that to be patient, you know, when a lot of people coming out early in the career especially if you get laid off, as you said, you did early on, you get discouraged <laughs> and uh, it's maybe a little bit hard to counsel patients, but it, if you're in this business long enough, you see a lot of things come and go and you gather a lot of experience and knowledge and your network expands and it's, it starts to come together. So it just may take a little while, but then it all starts to, the, these different pieces seem to come together. So you and I know uh, Randy Heiler, you know, Randy, Randy, another great mentor of mine from Newport. And to this day where we remain friends, same thing with Gary and, you know, Randy would kind of come in and coach me and go, okay, you know, Jason, you know, we, we had a win for the people early in the career. 
they get frustrated. They want to have a big impact to the company. And sometimes they work for really large companies. And I think the, I think Gary's description of my job early in my career in a company as large as Newport within the industry and spectrophysics, it was, it was my job to be the tugboat. If you could just nudge, nudge the, the battleship, the aircraft carrier, just a little bit in the right direction, that was success. And, and that experience of learning to lead others via influence rather than actually being the leader. You know, everyone, what I see is the, the, these young people, they want to be the captain of the ship on day one. And it, it just doesn't work that way. I wasn't ready to be the captain of the ship, but I could be a tugboat. I tugboat, over yeah. time, I learned the skills and to become the captain of the ship and drive the ship and set the direction with all the responsibility that comes with that. So you're right, patience Patience is really key, but leverage the opportunities you have along the way. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, by the way, those tugboats keep the big the big ships from crashing into the Bay Bridge and the Gulf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they have a very important role. Um, well, final question. Uh, you know the community well. Any advice for others starting a company in optics and photonics? Well, I, Sue, so if you're starting a company, the first thing is make sure there's a market for the product you're developing. The, the, the most common error I see mm. is that people are developing technology for technology's sake rather than finding an mar- unmet market need and then applying technology to it. We, you know, we joke that we, we've discovered 2,000 ways not to build a LiDAR system. The reason is we understood the market need and we took the solution that met the market need. And so that's one, make sure there's a market for it. Second is you won't be successful without a team and you won't be successful without partners outside your team within the, you know, specifically within the optics and photonics community, which then goes back to my part about as a student and, and in your career, build social capital, build your network, build the people around you that when you call them up and say, hey, I need this, you don't make it. I want it. I need something different. I need something custom. They're going to pay attention to you because of something you've done with them in the past versus the alternative. If you haven't been good to people and you have a bad reputation, it doesn't help. And so I spent decades building relationships with people without expecting to get paid back. It all, it all comes forward and gets paid that's a, that's a yeah interesting to hear that and that's where OSA uh, you know we see our role also to help sort of provide that glue or that that ecosystem for people to to network and get to know each other and see what uh, you know the trade shows and opportunities there products and, and so forth so um, absolutely and it was pivotal in my career with the, those activities to be able to form those relationships. Uh, that's all the time we have for now, but thank you, Jason Eichenholz, for taking some time with us to talk about Luminar's public offering, your journey, volunteering, <laughs> uh, all that. We hope that you have a great 2021, and we look forward to following Luminar's progress. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for the opportunity. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs>